You know, I've been making my living as a journalist, or mainly as a journalist, since 1976. And I swear to you, there used to be times where I would think there's not much going on. I don't know exactly when the last time was that I thought that. I'm guessing it was probably around 2014, though. Uh, and for the most part, there's too much going on, and it's almost impossible to cover it all. We had so many choices to make today. I mean, there are these late deciding elections in various parts of the country that are really going down to the wire in kind of startling ways. Um, but there's also the get out of my lane movement in which uh, emergency room doctors uh, are rebuking the gun lobby and the gun enthusiasts. Uh, we actually almost did a segment on that today, and I think we've decided to develop a, a bigger show uh, about it. So today on the show, the things that we are going to be, I, I could name like five other things, but today on the show, the things we are going to talk about, we're going to talk a little bit later uh, about the aftermath of the, uh, not firing, but the forced resignation of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General, kind of what happens next uh, with David Rode from The New Yorker. We're having sort of a um, New Yorker radio hour here today. Uh, we're actually, we're totally having a, a New Yorker radio hour. We're also going to talk about the um, alteration or lack thereof, the famous uh, Jim Acosta moment at the White House press conference uh, with a writer who's really been looking at that whole question of how uh, video either can or can't be altered. I mean, you know, it used to be sort of one of the ways of verifying something was pics or it didn't happen or a video or it didn't happen. Well, there might be video and it still didn't happen now. That may or may not be the case with the Acosta Mike incident, but it's, it's a symptom of a larger problem. We'll get to that towards the end of the show today. But we really did want to talk about, particularly as I was watching the events uh, unfold over the weekend in France in particular, um, as we celebrate, if that's the right word, the end of World War One. I. I think celebrating the end of it is probably a pretty good idea, although as you'll hear, not everything about the end of World War I was good. The fact that it ended was good. Um, and, and the ways in which then and now um, uh, it, it was easy to, to turn the story to, so that it faced – different parts of it faced the light of the present or the light of history. I'm not expressing that very well. But there's a way in which you know, we can take any event and, and rotate it uh, like a piece of quartz so that different facets gleam, sometimes maybe not the facets that are the most important. Uh, so with that in mind – and I, I should say I'm going to tell you at the end of this segment uh, about uh, – a new work of music that will debut next Saturday. It's connected to the 100th anniversary of the Armistice. I'm involved in performing it. And because of that, when I saw this article in The New Yorker a few weeks ago, still available to you uh, online, uh, by Adam Hochschild, a lecturer at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, author of nine books, including To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918. This article of his, The Eleventh Hour, which if you keep a stock of New Yorkers in your house somewhere, uh, this will be in your November 5th print edition. But it, it looks at some recent books about the end of World War I, but also just sort of looks at some of the realities that we don't necessarily gaze out straight on, particularly at a very you know sentimental and august uh, time like this one. So <clears throat> over the weekend, yes, uh, there were uh, ceremonies. Uh, President Macron tried to make certain points about the state of the world today based on the state of the world at that time. Uh, we can get to that. But first of all, uh, Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Good to be with you, Colin. So and I do know what you mean about there's so much happening, more than we can keep track it, of. We need 48 hours in a day these days. It's like swatting a, a horde of mosquitoes. They're just sort of stinging us all the time with, with what's happening. Uh, and it may have felt very much like that from 1914 to 1918. There was an awful lot going on, but it existed in a particular place, in, in a particular theater. But one of the points that you make is that the winding down of this war wasn't really necessarily a winding down, that oddly enough, in the fading hours of the war and even some of the minutes and hours after the actual signing of the armistice, some of the worst bloodshed occurred. Now, how is that even possible? You know, when something is as deep a, and long a stretch of madness as this First World War was, it's no surprise that it ended in a final spasm of madness. And I think what you're referring to is this peculiar fact. As we all know, the armistice was signed the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, you know, 11 a.m., November 11th, 1918. Uh, it was actually signed by German delegates who had come across the front lines, met with French and British delegates in a railway car in a forest in France, worked out an agreement that was basically a German surrender. Uh, and they signed it shortly after 5 a.m. on November 11, 1918. But the Allied generals all had orders to continue the attacks that were scheduled for that morning until the armistice took effect, which was not until 11 a.m. And during those six hours, uh, roughly 2,700 men were killed on both sides and more than 8,000 were wounded. And these were uh, Allied and German soldiers who died in these battles as Allied troops, uh, British, French, and American, attacked to gain ground, which the generals knew at 11 a.m. the Germans would be required to vacate this ground in a matter of days or even a matter of hours. Right. So that's a kind of madness, fighting and giving up lives to gain yardage that you're, you've already agreed that you're going to yield uh, at a certain moment. There's another kind of, I don't know if it's madness or not, another kind of calculation going on leading up to the signing of the armistice, as you, you say, that in order to get what would be the most unfavorable possible peace terms from Germany and from the point of view of the allies, perhaps the most favorable. There was a kind of punishment that was inflicted to make it clear uh, that that all was lost and, and that they should capitulate as much as possible. Maybe you could say a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, there was indeed, uh, because here's the situation. Basically, the German high command had asked for negotiations because they knew they were losing the war. Uh, they had been retreating steadily for several months. Uh, the Allies had been gaining ground, and especially in the last uh, couple of weeks, things had really begun to fray. German soldiers in the rear, not at the front, but in the rear, were uh, deserting in large numbers and uh, the German Navy was suffering through a mutiny where sailors ran up the red flag on their ships and refused to go to sea. So the Germans had to, had to stop. But the Allies, 
in addition to demanding the surrender of most of Germany's military equipment, from machine guns to battleships, also demanded that Germany hand over a lot of civilian gear as well. Uh, tens of thousands of railway freight cars, locomotives, that kind of thing, which sort of helped cripple the civilian economy. Furthermore, and I think this was the worst of it, uh, during the four and a half years of war, the British Navy had kept a tight blockade around Germany. No ships could get through. And this hurt the Germans very badly because the country had imported a quarter of its food on the eve of the war. And then during the war, uh, agricultural production in Germany dropped because the young men who would normally be out tilling the fields and herding the cattle and so on were all off at the front being killed. So Germany was half starving for much of the war. Uh, scholars estimate that more than 400,000 Germans died of malnutrition during the war. Uh, most German adults lost anywhere from 10 to 20% of their body weight. Uh, food was really short. But the terms of the armistice provided that the blockade would continue until Germany signed a final peace treaty. And everybody knew this was months away. And indeed, it would be nearly eight months later at Versailles when the final peace treaty was signed and the blockade was at last fully lifted. So during that time, after the firing had stopped for month after month after month, people in Germany uh, and uh, to some degree also in the former Austria-Hungary, which was now fragmenting into many different nations, uh, were suffering the kind of near starvation they had suffered during the war. And this added to the immense reservoir of bitterness and resentment, which would have been there in any case, but it, it sort of rubbed things in and made it worse. Notwithstanding everything that you just said, there was also the phenomenon because, as I understand it, the battle losses or the lost battles, if you want to put it that way, were happening really elsewhere, not in Germany. There was kind of a lack of understanding, apparently, among the po population of Germany, notwithstanding all the stuff that you just said, that they were actually losing the war, that they had lost the war, that there were things that their high command and their leadership knew that, that just hadn't filtered down at all. Absolutely, because, you know, the, the First World War was a huge propaganda war on both sides. Uh, the German press was particularly tightly controlled uh, by the military, and word of things like the mass desertions in the army was kept out of the, uh, out of the press. Uh, right up until the last couple of weeks, newspapers were predicting an imminent German victory. People knew that uh, in midsummer 1918, you know, four or five months earlier, German troops had almost been within reach of Paris. And furthermore, even though there had evidently been some retreats since then, uh, almost all the fighting was taking place somewhere quite far from German soil. Uh, the Western Front, of course, which is what we're most familiar with, because that's where American troops were, the fighting ranged back and forth across northern France and Belgium for the entire four and a half years of the war. Only a very tiny corner of Germany was involved. On the Eastern Front, where Germany faced Russia, they had essentially defeated Russia. And uh, uh, the Bolsheviks, when they came to power, signed a peace treaty, which 
gave to Germany a vast area of the former Russian Empire, uh, what today is mostly Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltic states, Moldova. And so Germany, people in Germany understandably thought there's no fighting going on on our soil. We occupy huge swaths of Europe, which we didn't occupy before. What do you mean we've lost the war? So this really prepared the way for the stab-in-the-back legend that Hitler and his allies so cleverly manipulated, uh, claiming that the German army had been on the verge of a glorious victory until it was stabbed in the back by Jews, uh, pacifists, communists, socialists, and so on. Yeah, you know, reading that, it, it really, I've been very, very interested lately in the problems we have in 2018 with objective reality and ways in which uh, people wind up believing almost sort of whole different canons uh, of facts. So if you watch Fox News and read Breitbart, you read believe one thing, you watch MSNBC and read the New York Times, maybe you believe something else. Uh, and increasingly people trust one system of facts and not the other. I think we think of that as a very new thing. And, and there may be ways in which it's a new thing. But the thing that you're describing right now is the same thing, that they were, oddly enough, fed a set of propaganda that told them that they were winning. They had no objective reality in front of their eyes to tell them that they were losing, uh, other than maybe a lack of food and some things like that. And and so then the same people who had told them that they were winning said, oh, no, actually, we've lost quite badly, and we're going to sign this, uh, this peace agreement, which is about as unfavorable a set of terms as anybody can imagine. Uh, and and it kind of I think almost broke down the system of trust in any kind of official account. I think it did. I mean, the the Allied nations, uh, Britain, France, and the United States, in the last year of the half year and a half of the war, had their own versions of propaganda, censorship, and so on. But it was by no means as stringent as it was in Germany. There were anti-war voices which could with some difficulty, continue to be heard. Uh, but when a government controls the news <clears throat> to this great an extent, I mean, imagine if in the United States we had nothing except Fox News and Breitbart. Uh, it is, you know, possible to manipulate mass opinion in a very powerful way, and this is what demagogues all over the world try to do. Um you know, over the weekend, Macron, uh, and it was, I think, I think the the line from his words that the the his own official press people tended to put out as uh, as one of the keystone remarks, uh, said that uh, that that nationalism was not the same thing as patriotism. In fact, nationalism was the enemy or the opposite uh, of patriotism. You could talk about that as the lead up to World War One, as you write, it wasn't as though there was a set of prevailing conditions that would inevitably leave, lead to war. It was kind of the opposite, right? That's right. I mean, there certainly were tensions among the European powers, as there are always tensions between, you know, kind of different countries. I mean, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were sort of at each other's throats uh, rhetorically and in other ways for 40 years, but managed never to get into an outright uh, war. Uh, but Europe, uh, summer of 1914, you know, if we roll the clock back to June of 1914, everybody was getting along with each other pretty well. Uh, Germany was Britain's largest trading partner. Uh, there was some 
tighter relationship between the two countries that there were some 50,000 German nationals who were actually living and working in England because they could earn slightly higher wages there. Uh, there was a great deal of trade between Germany and France. No country in Europe openly claimed a piece of another's territory, a traditional way in which wars started. Furthermore, the royal families of Britain, Germany, and Tsarist Russia were all cousins of each other. They knew each other. They were together at family weddings and vacations and so on. And the royal families in Germany and Russia had a great deal of power, absolute power in the case of Russia. And yet, after the assassination of the Archduke of Austria-Hungary at Sarajevo at the June 28, 1914, that set in motion the most incredible chain of threats, ultimations, blunders, miscalculations, and you know, six weeks later, the whole continent was in flames. And it didn't have to happen. You know, uh, there's inevitably a lot of myth-making that goes on during a war, after a war, maybe 100 years after a war. Um, it, it does seem that some of the most reckless military commanders, uh, the people who needlessly sacrificed uh, lives of their own troops, wind up being the ones most celebrated for their boldness, for their daring, for, for whatever reason. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, to my mind, the greatest example of that is uh, the British commander-in-chief on the, the Western Front for the last three years or so of the war, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, who uh, was somebody who was a very rigid man who took a long time to learn that the best way to make advances is not to order your soldiers to climb out of trenches and walk, don't run, don't crawl, walk straight into the face of machine gun fire. That's what they did for year after year after year, and those young men were mown down like stalks of hay. Another thing about Haig, because he did not have intelligence about German battle casualties, in any battle, he assumed that German casualties must be roughly equal to his own. And, you know, an army does tend to know how many of its soldiers are killed, wounded, or missing. And as a result, when after a particular battle or skirmish, his British divisional commanders did not report high casualties, he would berate them and say, you haven't been trying hard enough. So this is a guy who's lionized today. There's a statue of him in London. There's an annual Douglas Haig Memorial Lecture in Scotland. And uh, I don't think he deserves any of this. And you can say the same thing about a number of other commanders as well. Um one of the things that we'll never know is how history would have gone had World War I not have happened. Uh, on the other hand, and you see a lot of the institutions that you talk about, particularly royal institutions, kind of breaking down either during as a result or as a result uh, of World War I or during its aftermath. You see the rise of other kinds uh, of more civilian powers, including what happened in Germany, uh, rising up. Uh, I don't know. I mean, is, is World War, and of course, you also have have these uh, humiliating and, and, and sometimes very oppressive uh, terms of surrender for Germany. Is there any useful way to think about whether or not the end of World War I caused the beginning of World War II? I think it's impossible to imagine World War II and the Holocaust 
without World War I. Mm -hmm. Suppose the first war had not happened. Suppose the nations of Europe had found a way of continuing to coexist, uh, as, uh, as I mentioned, as the U.S. and the Soviet Union did for so many decades. Suppose that had happened, there'd been no war. There wouldn't have been that deep reservoir of bitterness, resentfulness, feeling of being betrayed that there was in Germany, which allowed Hitler to take power and to satisfy people's desire for a scapegoat by saying it was all the fault of the Jews. I think without the First World War, you know, it might not have been smooth sailing for Europe, but it's kind of hard to imagine somebody like Hitler uh, taking power. Germany was already in 1914 partly a monarchy, but partly a democracy with an elected legislature that had a good deal of power. I think the trend certainly would have been as it had been in almost every other Western mm -hmm. European country in the direction of the monarch losing power and the legislature gaining power. In Russia, the Tsar was still absolute ruler, and I don't think that could have lasted uh, you know, uh, another hundred years. There would have been changes, uh, probably with some violence uh, in them. Uh, but uh, uh, I still think that without the First World War, I cannot imagine, uh, I find it hard to imagine a worse set of events than did happen with the Holocaust and the Second War, which was so much more destructive than the first. Um, you know, we sh if we're going to talk about myth-making, we shouldn't uh, let our own nation off the hook. One of the things that you uh, illustrate in your piece is that the Americans arriving late to the party uh, had a whole pent-up belligerence uh, that they felt they had a limited amount of time to get out. Uh, and so as the war was winding down, they may have been the least enthusiastic winder-downers. I think that was true. You know, Americans had sat on uh, the sidelines, militarily speaking, even though the U.S. was de facto economically allied with the Allied countries because we were doing a booming business uh, selling uh, bullets, artillery shells, uh, arms, uh, armaments of all kinds, uh, coal, steel, you know, to the Allied countries, to, to, to Britain and France for the first two and a half years of the war. But Americans had not been in the war fighting. And there were a lot of young men who wanted to fight, as unfortunately there are in most countries at most times. And when they finally got to Europe, the American troops, uh, some of them, were so enthusiastic that there was a problem of what officers called deserting to the front. That is, soldiers who were assigned to do work in rear areas, uh, you know, loading trucks or, you know, peeling potatoes or whatever, would desert and find their way to the front lines, so, you know, so they could get in a few shots at the Germans. So the Americans were very enthusiastic about this kind of combat, unlike the British and French who'd been at it for four years and seen their friends killed and, you know, lived in trenches under horrible conditions for, for all that time. So the U.S. was last to the party, and many of the soldiers, not all of them, but many of them wanted to enjoy that party. 
All right. Uh, we, we're going to stop here, but Adam Hookshield, you make my job very easy. You're a great guest. A lecturer at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, author of nine books, including To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918. And yes, seek out his uh, article, The Eleventh Hour, in the November 5th print edition of The New Yorker, uh, or you can find it online. Oh, can I have like a little extra time here? Just like two, two extra seconds. I just want to say one thing. So um, apropos of all this, um, there was a composer named David McBride, uh, who uh, a few years ago wrote a very interesting piece uh, about uh, war and peace uh, based a little bit on the world on World War One. It was a piece for orchestra and spoken word. It involved me having to perform or to read kind of with the music uh, Wilfred Owen's Dolce et Decorum Est, his great anti-war poem. I, I asked David for years to write kind of a, a follow-up piece, and, and he eventually did. Uh, it's a piece called We Are Making a New World. David then, earlier this fall, David died in his sleep. Uh, the Avery Ensemble and I were planning to put this on with David's help and supervision because it's a piece that's never been performed before. Uh, he's not going to be able to do that for us, but we are going to do the piece anyway. It's Saturday night, this Saturday night, 7.30 p.m. Uh, it'll be at a program called Armistice. Uh, it'll fe- feature Clark's Morpheus for viola and piano, Ravel's uh, pa- piano trio in A minor, and then David McBride's We Are Making a New World for Piano Quartet and Narrator. Uh, so we will be doing that at St. John's Episcopal Church, uh, which is on Farmington Avenue, right over the Hartford line in West Hartford. And uh, there's no tickets. You just show up. Uh, I think they are, there's a voluntary donation idea uh, of maybe a suggested donation of $20. But whatever you want, you just go and sit down and listen if that's what you want to do. Uh, thanks so much to Adam. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about 2018, more than 1918, uh, in two more segments. In probably the worst-kept secret of the recent Trump administration, Jeff Sessions was forced to depart immediately after the midterm elections. It's actually probably worth getting technical about. He was, in fact, asked to resign. He, in his letter, said, you have sought my resignation. Here it is. It's a little bit different from firing somebody, but it wasn't big news. The president (laughs) made it clear about 162 times he was going to get rid of Jeff Sessions as AG whenever he could. A little bit of a surprise was that Matt Whitaker was... was installed as acting attorney general, bypassing the normal chain of succession for acting AGs. Ordinarily, it would automatically be Rod Rosenstein. If it weren't uh, him, it would have been the third or fourth person down. Uh, So Whitaker's a a little bit of a wild card there and a guy who has expressed in the media some hostility towards the whole notion of a special counsel investigation. So where does that leave us? It's a good question. Uh, To get an answer, we turn to David Rode, executive editor of NewYorker.com and global affairs analyst for CNN. His forthcoming book about the Trump administration's uh, FBI and the CIA will be published in early 2020. So, uh, David Rode, after that very lengthy setup, where are we right now? I mean, uh, there's been a lot of sound and fury over the weekend, particularly from the the future Democratic majority uh, in the House. But do, do we just sort of know, has this situation sorted itself out in any kind of meaningful way? Uh, it hasn't. And as you mentioned, the new Democratic head of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, says he wants to call Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general, as the very first witness once Democrats take control in January to, to see whether he will recuse himself from the Mueller investigation. The problem here is that Whitaker 
has criticized the Mueller investigation. He has said it should be reined in. He's does, done other controversial things. But this is, uh, you know, an area where the newly Democratic-controlled House will clash with right. President and, Trump. And, you know, Robert Mueller, who has this rather sphinx-like uh, bearing at, at times, to the extent that we know anything about his attitude, his attitude seems to be that he's going to approach Matt Whitaker as though he were an honorable person who means him no harm. And I, I sort of wonder about that, too. There's this kind of default assumption that because Whitaker has said certain things in the press, that he is going to try to starve the Mueller investigation for air. And I wonder about that. I mean, he's a former uh, U.S. attorney. I don't know if Mueller sat down and laid out this, you know, uh, briefed him to the extent of pervasive financial malfeasance and tax fraud and money laundering and unacceptable money coming in from foreign agents. I mean, does Matt Whitaker want to be the new Bork? I guess that's the question I'm asking you. We don't know. And under the system that was sort of established post uh, Watergate, he should not. There's been a pattern of every president since Nixon not interfering in criminal investigations carried out by the Justice Department. Um, it was seen as too politically toxic. This was not an, you know, an idealistic thing. Nixon's efforts to remove special prosecutor Archibald Cox was, was sort of one of his initial giant political mistakes that end up leading to his resignation. So you're right. To be fair, you know, we can see what Whitaker does. What the Democrats, their sort of talking point is that Whitaker should publicly recuse himself. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what Jeff Sessions did. Why won't Whitaker do it, you know, right now? Right. So we always struggle with the question, does Donald Trump play chess or does he play checkers? You know, if he plays chess, uh, one of the things he might want to do, maybe even learning a little bit of a lesson from the mistakes made by Gingrich and his group in 1994, is to get the new Democratic majority to overplay its hand, to kind of go nuts. Uh, you could argue that Whitaker is kind of thrown out there as a piece of red meat and, and that Nadler and Schumer and Schiff and everybody else kind of took the bait and just kind of went wild with it uh, over the weekend. You know, if Trump is playing checkers, he's just looking for some guy who could maybe take the heat off of him from Mueller. I don't, do you have any surmise about that one way or the other? I, I think the president is very effective in terms of communication strategies. And beyond this, the issue of Whitaker or not, he has very effectively undermined the credibility of the Mueller investigation in the eyes of his own supporters. You know, there's been dramatic drops in faith in the FBI among Republicans, traditionally the party of law and order. So there is a very clear strategy. You know, yes, this Whitaker hiccup aside, almost whatever uh, Mueller comes up with, Trump supporters are going to see that as, you know, unfair, as a political prosecution of the president's aides. You know, the, the real new news here is, you know, rumors that the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., could be indicted by Mueller for perjury. That could be the kind of overkill, you know, you just talked about. I mean, the other thing that we should say is that the relationship between Whitaker and Mueller is going to be whatever it's going to be. But Mueller has already kind of hived off some of the parts of his investigation to at least three other federal jurisdictions. And as acting attorney general, I think there's only so much, you know, smacking around that you can probably do. I mean, even if he decides that he would like to starve out uh, Mueller or, or use it in the other techniques that he's, he's actually talked about in the press, you know, then there's the Southern District of New York. There's two other, I think, U.S. attorney's offices that, that have stuff. I mean, you can't just make this go away by making Mueller go away, can you? Uh, that's very true. You know, these FBI investigations have started. The FBI, you know, my understanding is they will, they will carry them out. So 
Ken Starr's, his investigation of Clinton sort of grew and grew, Mueller has delegated. So that is a difference in strategy. And I, I don't think it will end. And again, this is why the, the, the political landscape has changed with the Democrats winning the House. They will be under pressure to follow up um, on all these investigations if, if Mueller is uh, removed uh, one way or another. You know, underlying all this is a question that uh, you explored in your piece for The New Yorker. And it's one that I think, well, it takes like a 6,000 word Jack Goldsmith article to, for us to even get a handle on it, which is how independent ever is the Justice Department? You would assume intuitively anyway that uh, a cabinet official who is appointed by the president is therefore kind of infinitely reportable to and answerable to the president. You would also, thinking about modern history and Watergate and stuff like that, think, well, that can't be 100 percent true, or at least it's not healthy for it to be 100 percent true. But it really seems like a kind of murky question, how much independence the Justice Department and by implication the FBI have. I don't know. Do you feel like you have a handle on that? So, look, we've had real questions about this. President Trump you know, talks about a deep state. And before Watergate, you know, there, there was enormous problems. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, on his own, harassed Martin Luther King, you know, taped his hotel rooms and tried to destroy him. The CIA, again, pre-Watergate, had Americans under surveillance for protesting the Vietnam War. The CIA spied on John Lennon. The trauma of Watergate led to a bunch of reforms called the church reforms that were supposed to prevent the FBI and the Justice Department and the CIA from being used for political purposes that has been the norm since Watergate, this idea of the rule of law. Everyone, including the president, is accountable to the law and that, that law enforcement should never be political. And the concern now is that being undermined either by President Trump calling for a criminal inquiry, a new criminal inquiry, a new special prosecutor, Hillary Clinton, or our Democrats overdoing it by you know, supporting all these investigations of the president. Obviously, voters decide that. But I, I think, you know, there's a danger of President Trump sort of overplaying his hand. I think there is a core belief now for the last 40 years, law enforcement should be independent. The president's friends and even the president's son and the, you know, the president himself, you know, should be held accountable to the law. It has to be a fair process. Can Mueller be seen as fair? Can a Democratic inquiry be seen as fair? That's the big political question in front of us. So one of the uh, terms uh, or tropes that's been kicked around a little bit, and it, I, it may have originated, I don't know, with our own U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, is the notion of this being kind of a slow motion Saturday Night Massacre rather than doing something as dramatic uh, as what Nixon did. Uh, you, yeah, you starve them for funds and you don't do everything in one day. You don't fire Archibald Cox and the next guy who won't fire Elliot Richardson and you won't fire everybody in, in one day. You just sort of let it go drip, drip, drip. And Trump is very good anyway at restructuring objective reality and getting us to sort of think that things are normal when they are, in fact, dramatic departures from convention. I don't know. The scenario that you just laid out, the upcoming uh, or oncoming indictment of Donald Jr., if that were to happen, I can't imagine that would happen in slow motion. I just feel like everything would, you know, the dominoes would start falling pretty fast. Yeah, there's been a pattern of, of Robert Mueller sort of unveiling, unveiling investigations on Friday. So everyone at the New Yorker was ready last <laughs> Friday, the first Friday after the election. Uh, he abided by the norm of, of no announcements, you know, within close to an election. Uh, but nothing came uh, last Friday. So we don't know. Yes, that would be enormous news. 
the possibility would be that Donald Trump Jr., you know, uh, lied under oath when he was asked about whether he, you know, I believe it's told his president about this meeting he had in Trump Tower with a Russian lawyer with ties to the Russian government who was offering uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton. I think if that happens, the reaction to an indictment of Donald Trump Jr. or more indictments by Mueller will be just as polarized as all of our politics. You know, roughly a third of the country will be outraged and think it's unfair to the Trump family. A third of the country will support it. And a third of the country that doesn't vote and is less engaged or sort of won't know what to think of it. So this Mueller investigation is just another one of our polarized political points. But I agree it would be more savvy politically to go slowly, you know, firing, as Nixon did, the attorney general of the United States because he won't get rid of the special counsel, firing the deputy attorney general of the United States because he won't get rid of the special counsel. And then Cox was removed, and on October 20th, 1973, his office was shut, and that had the opposite effect. It really raised even more questions for Nixon about Watergate. So we'll, we'll see what the president does. Right. Well, if that indictment happens, uh, one group of people unlikely to protest will be lions and tigers. They'd be very happy to have any uh, Trump offspring <laughs> not out there with a hunting rifle anymore. Uh, David Rode, executive editor of NewYorker.com. Thanks so much for doing this, and we're looking forward to your forthcoming book about the Trump administration, the FBI, and the CIA due out in 2020. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. Oh, I remember Richard Nixon back in 74 And final scene at the White House door And the staff lined up just to say goodbye Tiny tear in shifty little eye He said, nobody knows me Nobody understands Little people were good to me Somebody line them up, line them all up Oh, line them up, line them all up Help me line them up, line them all up Yeah, line them up, line them all up Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this episode. If William Tong were forced to resign, she would be the 1,299th in line to become acting attorney general-elect of Connecticut. I'm currently acting Ariana Grande's boyfriend. Amanda Fish is acting acting coach of our show. Carlos Mejia is acting like he doesn't know us. The acting Bill Curry today are Mumford & Sons. On tomorrow's show, our salute to regret. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, everybody's acting something, probably. Uh, all right, so uh, finally today, um, and this is sort of a, kind of a, a nice serendipitous thing in, in a way, um, although it wasn't serendipitous at the beginning. So last week, you may remember, uh, there was a kerfuffle and a brouhaha at the White House press conference. Uh, Jim Acosta from CNN did not willingly uh, give up the microphone. Uh, a White House intern went over to try to uh, get it from him. And then there, from that, there kind of devolved a dispute about exactly what transpired. Uh, did, in fact, Jim Acosta use one of his arms to kind of ward off in some way this woman? Did he, he maybe even almost like karate chopped down on her arm as this young woman was trying to get the microphone away from him. This is the kind of thing that we worry about uh, in 21st century America. Uh, so joining us now is Joshua Rothman. Josh Rothman's been with us before uh, for other reasons, uh, archive editor at The New Yorker. So 
uh, Josh, the serendipitous part about this, if that's the right word, was as this video began to trickle out, as it began, as it was issued out by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, video purporting to be proof of the fact that Acosta had behaved in a manner unbecoming a White House correspondent, that he had used his, his arm uh, against this woman in, uh, in an inappropriate way. You just happened to be winding up work uh, on a re- pretty lengthy article about video manipulation. So first of all, just give us kind of a sense of how vast that topic is these days. Well, it's a hugely crazily vast topic. <laughs> um, you know, so the article, yes, that's exactly right. I was finishing up an article about um, a field that's called image synthesis. It's basically a, a field where you use artificial intelligence and other uh, sort of cutting edge computer technologies to make uh, very realistic looking fake videos. And I guess the key development here is it used to, you know, we, people have been able to make fake looking video, uh, realistic looking fake videos for a long time, which you see if you go to the movies. Um, but usually it's been something that experts, you know, like Hollywood special effects artists do. But because of these new computer technologies, it's possible for just regular people uh, or regular, you know, technically minded people to do it in their house. Um, and for, you know, the quantity of fake video in the, in the world to increase dramatically. Um, and so, yeah, it's a huge topic because it touches on, you know, there's a technology aspect, obviously, but then there's a political aspect, which is what we've just started to see, and, and a, a legal aspect, and um, you know, a, a kind of a social media side to it. Um, it's 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 going to be a huge thing, I think. Yeah. So your larger article about this, I mean, I think it it almost suggests that we're blundering towards a world of total agnosticism. We're going to go from pics or it didn't happen to well, pics prove absolutely nothing one way or the other. So that if you wanted to prove uh, for purposes of your divorce proceeding that your husband was having an affair and you produce a picture of him and another woman, he can say it's a doctored picture. You could conceivably have doctored doctored that picture, uh, and without a tremendous amount of expertise it's going to be increasingly difficult to tell which thing is the case. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe a way to think about it is uh, we all know that Photoshop lets you edit photographs. And we know that, you know, models and advertisements have been airbrushed or Photoshopped. Um, But video has been sort of a special category. And actually, we're we're very trusting of video. Um, And so, you know, if you think about um, body cameras, police body cameras, or citizen video, like the type you see, um, you know, at a protest or you know, we, we there's an idea that video is very authentic, and right now it, it mostly is. Um, uh, you know, we've you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, started in in many respects because of uh, or ca- was catalyzed in many respects by by you know very powerful videos taken by ordinary people on the street with their cell phones. Um, but one thing that's coming is um, you know videos are going to be easier and easier to edit, and um, you know the the way we interpret those videos is going to be made more complex. Right. So, um, so to get to any cases here, um, what we had was a, a situation where the White House uh, released this video uh, of Acosta and this White House intern, but it wasn't really there. The first problem was it wasn't really their video. It was from an absolutely unimpeachable source, Infowars. I mean, <laughs> right. whoever knew them to take liberties with anything. But so that's where it came from, right? That's right. Um, so it appears that. Uh, Sarah Sanders or someone in her office, um, you know, basically shared via Twitter without attribution this video, which um, had ultimately been originally shared by the editor at large of Infowars. Um, and the video, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it shows you something that you've already seen, um, which is 
um, this this moment of apparent physical contact between Jim Acosta and the White House intern during the press conference, um, and it sort of loops the the uh, apparent moment of contact a few times, and it's zoomed in, and it's a little blockier and blurrier than what you would have seen on C-SPAN, um, and um, so you know I guess you could say there were there were multiple layers of. Uh, of problem here, and you know, one was that the video was manipulated in some way or edited, and that, that's kind of interesting to think about. You know, in, in what to what degree it was manipulated, and another, which to me, to my mind, is sort of more important, is that its source was obscured. I mean, it sort of seemed when she shared it as though um, it was coming from the White House and not from somebody else's computer where they had done whatever they did to it. Right. So reading your piece, and I also read the long piece in BuzzFeed about this, it, yep. it, it's still not clear at the end of this. Uh, and, and according to the expert that you use, who's also the, one of the experts who really dominates your, your much longer yep. story about this, it's not clear that there was an intentional alteration. This may have been just kind of a cross-format, uh, uh, an unintended consequence of cross-formatting this, this piece of imagery. Yeah, it's a little, I mean, so... You know, the word people have been using, uh, like on Twitter, about this video is that it was it was doctored, um, and you know that may be the word that applies. It may be a word like altered, or a word like edited, or a word like manipulated. Um, the, we will probably never know exactly what steps were taken with the video. Um, yes, the the, the, the forensic. Actually, I'm not a forensic ex, uh, forensics expert. I'm a journalist, right? But the expert I spoke with, uh, Hani Farid, who's a professor at Dartmouth. Um, you know, his theory, um, which is also what the InfoWars editor says happened, is that, um, you know, it, it was a video made from an animated GIF. And the animated GIF had the effect of uh, making it blockier and blurrier, which sort of erases the border between Acosta's hand and the intern's arm, which sort of makes it look like there was more contact than there was. Um, but I thought the most interesting thing that, that uh, uh, Far- um, Farid told me, Professor Farid, was that um, you know, the, the thing that makes the video the most misleading is just the camera angle. Mm-hmm. And that if you look at the scene from a different angle, because there were other cameras in the room, you see that the contact between the hand and arm didn't look um, or wasn't, in fact, as substantial as it appeared from this one particular angle. Um, so, you know, it's sort of an important thing to, to take away from this is that, you know, videos don't have to be profoundly doctored using high-tech AI algorithms in order to be misleading. And the tweeting out of a misleading video is itself a form of media manipulation. Um, and if, you know, on some level, the White House just acted the way um, plenty of people act on social media, which is to just cruise around until you find the evidence that looks like the narrative you want to promulgate, and then they shared it. And that's something that plenty of people do, but, you know, you, you want more from the White House um, than, than that. So, you know, I think we're, I think it maybe is appropriate to use a word like manipulated for this video, but we're probably going to see way more manipulated videos in the future with, with much more elaborate and complex manipulations that are much harder to see and, and maybe resist, resist identification, which right. is the... Yeah, and I think reading. I really recommend Josh's larger article about this uh, to people who care about this topic. It's mind blowing in a lot of ways, particularly when you get to the part about. Auto- I always knew autocomplete was going to destroy civilization in some way. <laughs> I didn't guess that autocomplete would play this role. There's we don't have time to even begin to try to explain what autocomplete has to do with this particular topic. So you're just going to have to read the article. But yeah, I think we may be heading back to first of all the phrase "we may never know." That may come up a lot uh, with some of these videos. 
And, and uh, you know, we may be heading back to sort of heuristics. Uh, I mean, you know, if there's a video of your bachelor party and Barack Obama and a velociraptor are both at it. There's a pretty good chance the video was doctored. You know, it, it, we may have to use other things like multiple camera angles or, you know, I mean, much more analog conventional ways of figuring out the truth of things. I think that's right. I mean, I guess the way I came to look at it after reporting the piece is um, you know, an expert is always – it's very likely that for the foreseeable future, uh, experts are going to be able to declare that a video is, uh, it has, been, has been tampered with. Um, what's harder is to say that a video hasn't been tampered with, that a video is authentic. That's harder to say. The best you can say is, I didn't find evidence of manipulation in this video. And that's a difficult situation to be in um, from the point of view of trusting and believing uh, video. Um, and of course, even if an expert says that a video has been manipulated, it's probably already been seen tens of millions of times by people who believe it. Um, and it will be reshared over and over again on social media. Right. So, you know, the, the, in some ways, the heart of this problem is it's not so much media manipulation it's, or image manipulation. It's simply the viral spread of these ideas. Um, and, you know, my, my feeling is that we've sort of already reached the problem. I mean, a, if you imagine a fake video of Hillary Clinton welcoming a child into her pizzeria, mm -hmm. which yes. is a fake video, um, and you ask how much worse is that than a fake news article saying, you know, a news, uh, an apparently reputable news article saying the same thing, I think um, in some ways these fake videos are a sort of concrete um, – you know, symbol of the slightly harder to grasp reality we've already arrived at, which is that once everyone starts sharing everything um, and sort of trying to win arguments by sharing stuff on the internet, um, you've already reached a point where it's it can be it can be advantageous to you in making your argument to ignore um, the unreliability of the facts you are citing. All right, um, Josh Rothman, yeah. we're going to have to start stop there. Archive editor at the New Yorker, uh, read his piece on the White House video of Jim Acosta, then follow the link to the larger and more detailed piece uh, about the state of this technology. It will well, I don't exactly know what emotional impact it will have on you. I can't even begin to guess. It's really not my job. Uh, all right, but in, anyway, thanks for listening to a terrific show today. At least I hope you thought it was a terrific show. Betsy Kaplan did everything in her power to make it a terrific show. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>